Association. 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 That was such uber ponage. Hello, fellow nerds. Welcome to the Nerd Association podcast from the WBNS radio studios in Columbus, Ohio. I'm your host, Mark Finch. And I'm your other host, Daniel Barnett. Here on Nerd Association, we like to remind you that just because we have cool jobs, it doesn't make us cool. Once again, I want to remind folks we are looking for some uh, pop culture hot takes for a special episode we're going to be doing here at the end of the month. You can send those our way at the Nerd Association Twitter or at our email. I will give you those at the end of the episode if you don't already know them. So again, go ahead and send us your pop culture hot takes so we can give our opinions on those. And and it's uh, it's worth maybe pulling the curtain back a little bit here, Mark, as, we, as we're about to talk about a film that, that has a lot to do with physical pain and emotional pain. Mm-hmm. We're going to be giving ourselves some physical pain for our <laughs> pop culture hot takes. And maybe we'll say more about that as the weeks go on. So as we digest those hot takes. Absolutely. So I would like to give, uh, before we jump into our traditional uh, opener for how we introduce these things, I do want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about a film that touches on uh, sexual abuse and child abuse and um, some pretty violent stuff. We're not going to be talking about it in super detailed ways, but if that's something that bothers you, maybe this isn't the episode for you. We are continuing our uh, month of of spooky movies, and I would say this one is just about as close to like pure horror as you can get. So, yeah. with all of that prelude, Mark, what do you think of when I say all words are lies, but pain doesn't lie? Well, I <laughs> I think of this movie is <laughs> that's a tough one to to react to. I didn't know what you were going to go with here. Did you want, because... Sorry, did you want me to go kitty kitty kitty? <laughs> I thought that about was, that yeah. too. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting because I watched it with subtitles. Mm-hmm. Audition, the movie we watched this week, yeah. um, which I think is for this one. There's sometimes with foreign language movies where, like, I've seen a lot of like the Korean zombie movies, which are becoming a trend mm-hmm. right now, and I think those work with the dubs because it's like action based. Yeah. But for this one, I was very appreciative of doing it with the subtitles and getting to also hear the native language that it was in, which would have been Japanese. For sure. And we are talking about the 1999 film Audition, uh, directed by Takashi Miike. Uh, and it is uh, a movie that that has made its way kind of all over the world. It was in, I believe, like the Palme d'Or uh, film competition in France and, and has been in different film festivals and things like that. For those who aren't familiar, Takashi Miike is... I would compare him maybe to like David Fincher or Quentin Tarantino. Um, he's a director that that one of his primary goals in filmmaking is to buck against censorship. And so he often takes on topics that are very difficult, has movies with a lot of violence in them yeah. or like mature themes, although also has directed like children's movies and things. <laughs> so, uh, you know, occasionally one comes out that surprises you. But another name that kind of reminds me of that type of filmmaking is Sam Raimi. Yeah. 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 The Evil Dead movies and like the remember Drag Me to Hell mm-hmm. uh, that came out or, uh, earlier last decade. But then also Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I thought about Peter Jackson, too, whose career started with, like, crazy violent uh, horror movies. And then, of course, became, you know, Lord of the Rings and uh, a lot of these very thoughtful yeah. films more recently. And then King Kong kind of put those two a little bit together sure. with, like, the, the bug stuff is so creepy in that movie. Yeah, 
Takashi Miike, for people who know anything about Japanese cinema, is like one of the names uh, of the modern age. Mm-hmm. So uh, the premise of the film, and I, we, we don't want to necessarily just give a beat for beat, but the premise of the film is a man, his wife dies, and mm-hmm. for seven years he raises his son by himself. And then one day his son tells him, you know, you ought to remarry. And so uh, the guy's a movie producer, and he and his one of his movie producer buddies come up with this scheme during which they will hold auditions for a real script for a film, but not really one they intend to make. And mm-hmm. through that interview, a bunch of women, and then, you know, this guy it has his so pick of the litter, so to speak. Uh, and I, that's a very sexist way or fem- like of we, me talking about it, and that's the way the movie frames it. It's, and we're going to talk about weird. that. <laughs> At the beginning of the movie, like I know sort of what's coming. This is the first time I'd ever seen it, so I I kind of know where it's going. But, but I, I gave exactly you a little happening. bit of bracing beforehand. <laughs> yes, but at the beginning of the movie, San's jokes, it actually has more of the premise of like a romantic comedy or sure. like a dude bro comedy, where it's just like, yeah, man, we'll hold this audition and we'll we'll find you a wife and you'll get to meet all these chicks. And yeah. it's just like, where is this movie going with this premise that is clearly not what it's actually trying to set right. up? But that's kind of like what you're getting at at first. Like it just has that the beats of the beginning of a movie like that. And and yeah, definitely. It's I agree with you because I was thinking about like about halfway through, I was like, this is kind of a rom com. Yeah, or not right. a rom-com but like a yeah a romance uh, romantic movie um but with a yeah strange premise and then uh, he becomes infatuated with one of the women he meets at the audition she becomes they kind of become obsessed with one another in different ways mm-hmm. we'll talk about that later too yeah because uh, he has her circled even before she comes in for the audition sure just reading her like application and their relationship kind of blossoms and there's a lot of hints that she has kind of a dark past or that there's a darker side to her by the end of the mm-hmm. movie you see that come out in full effect so um i know that there are some like particular some some themes and some scenes we wanted to talk about um do you want to jump in maybe with talking about some of the scenes first and then hit those themes on the way and then kind of do a wrap later maybe, or. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to go about it. Yeah. So one of the, one of the kind of pivotal scenes is when the father near the beginning of the movie, the father and son go on this fishing excursion together. The son Mm -hmm. that you see at the beginning as like a seven year old is now 14 or 15. Um, and they go out fishing and, and the metaphor of like, you know, there are fish in the sea catching a woman. It kind of comes into play. It's the first time we start to hear the way in which our protagonist, Shigaharu, mm-hmm. talks about women in a very, I mean, one could call it like a traditional sense of thinking. These days we would call it a misogynist sense of thinking, like yeah. women as being kind of um, objectified. And in this case, he compares them to animals. And he does, and that happens throughout the film, you know, on, on several occasions. But there's this kind of thing where his son is just like, you know, you look tired, you need to get remarried, like that. And he just takes that as like, he just takes that as like, oh, you know what? Maybe I will do that. I'll just go find a wife. Yeah. Like not like, yeah, not looking just to like maybe get back in the dating pool, maybe meet somebody. He's just like, okay, I'll pick one, and she better be accomplished, and then I can make her my wife. Yeah. And there's every indication that he really loved his first wife, and that, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the the movie starts with 
with her dying and him at the bedside and and it's it's a heartbreaking scene especially when the son walks in um yeah. but yeah by this devastation definitely portrayed very well in that scene yeah but by this point it's very much kind of a murder of or murder <laughs> freudian slip there a marriage of convenience <laughs> that he's looking for even though he specifically says he doesn't want an arranged marriage which i thought was very interesting because he definitely wants an arranged marriage <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. that's specifically the kind of thing he's looking for um, yeah, I mean, he has like things on a checklist that like he would want in, you know, his new wife. But yeah, he doesn't really seem to be like going out there and just trying to figure it out by going on dates and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so uh, this, as we alluded to, this audition takes place. Um, his buddy is Yoshikawa. And again, it's it's they're both sort of film and television producers and mm-hmm. they decide uh, they're going to take this script, which was a documentary they made for German television, and they're going to rework it into a drama, and they're going to do a casting call for this film. They run this local this ad on local radio that says, you know, would you like to be the next Audrey Hepburn or Julia Roberts? Then come audition for this film. Yeah. Um, and and then they, they even talk about it in a sexist way when they're setting up this audition, because the, he's like, well... Well, the girl who gets the part would even want to be with me. And he's like, you're not going to get the girl who gets the part. Right. She'll be too successful for you. You'll have to take one of the girls who has, you know, just enough tragedy in her life, but not too much. Well, the, but she's a good actress. There's a specific. Yeah, there's a specific phrase, he says, which is the, the girl that gets the part will be too unhappy. To, for you to want to be with her because she, you know, yeah. all good actresses are really deeply down, very unhappy. So, but whoever you end up with is going to be somebody who's like talented, but happy. And uh, we'll put out the casting call with these accomplishments that we want these women to have. So they will all fit your criteria. Yeah. And he's interested in somebody who's a piano player or, you know, has some sort of artistic background and, yeah. but not someone who's so good at it that, you know, there's this like, well, a girl like that's expensive. Uh, yeah. He, <laughs> He doesn't want a classically trained concert pianist that is like her career. He just wants somebody who can also do some of that stuff. Right. Um, And there's also, this may not be the right point to talk about, but there's also hints throughout the movie that the women that Shigaharu are in his life that like his secretary or his housekeeper, Mm -hmm. that there's like sexual tension or romantic tension. Well, with the secretary, sexual tension that's later confirmed. Um, yes. But with the housekeeper, sort of a romantic tension that that kind of just gets brushed away. It's well, like doesn't she say maybe that is in that later sequence, but that's repeated the same. The thing that the the housekeeper says, she says, like, you need a woman or like any man without ground. a woman will be exhausted. Right. Well, and also says, I wish my husband was as efficient as you. There's and and, and yeah, she's married, but there's this implication she'd be perfectly willing to have an affair with him. Uh huh. So, but he, but he's not interested in these sort of commonplace, you know, a, a secretary or a, a housekeeper. He wants somebody with a little more judge, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the audition. So they have they narrow it down to thirty women that they want to come in, and I I believe we see all thirty women. I don't think that I mean it's done in a montage way, but we uh-huh. see all of them. And boy, for some of them, do we see them? Um, we might not see the last two because Asami's twenty eight. Correct, and Asami is. Yeah, is the is the female love interest in this in this one? But you're right. At least leading up, I think we do see all 28, and they yeah, it's the little montage, and they do various demeaning things to different girls for different reasons, and it's, yeah, 
it's it, it is sort of creepy because they're filming it and stuff and then you know as far as the viewer knowing that it's a fake audition right the things they're putting some of these women through asking some of them how they feel about sexual scenes some of them to take their clothes off things right. like that that are for the real reason that they're doing it is it makes it even more creepy than it already is for sure and shigaharu says like one of the first things he says to his friend is i feel like a criminal and then they go on to ask these like super invasive questions as you said stuff that wouldn't be related to any sort of role but these a lot of these women bend over backwards to try to impress mm-hmm. these men um and you're right the fact that it's taped and the fact that while that might be normal for maybe a regular audition knowing what you know it's very voyeuristic they frame the camera as being like focusing on women's thighs and women's butts and breasts and things like that they and never they also never run lines with any of the women none of them yeah, <laughs> they don't do any of the like acting stuff. It's just all these weird personal questions to, you know, to disguise what they're really trying to get at. And and the thing that I think makes it even more creepy is that it's it's done as sort of like a like a seventies move like go go movie montage with like the upbeat music in the background. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, a lot of these women are coming in and and really. Um, putting on their their best face and and you know uh, want to impress this these men and we know as the audience like this is really creepy what they're doing <laughs> yeah i mean it, it just has that like picture of like I mean, high it's, class it's, men with cigars laughing in the back yeah. room and stuff like that it just feels like that well and it's it's a cattle call like in the kind of you know in the mm-hmm. most literal sense well, not literal sense in the <laughs> in the the sort of sense that like they're not really there for any sort of artistic reasons they're just kind of looking for meat for him to sink his teeth into so to speak yeah and this isn't also some ploy that they came up with they're in this industry they're using their their place in media and being film producers which that also rings true to sure. things that have happened in Hollywood and stuff like that to just take advantage of these women. Well, yeah, it's very Harvey Weinstein. If you, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, and it's it, not to that extent, or and that's not supposed to be the purpose. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it definitely has parallels in real life. Um, but so, so Asami, the again, the the female love interest, he gets his eyes on her before the audition begins. He reads her essay, and throughout yeah. the audition, Shigaharu says almost nothing, doesn't ask questions until she comes in. And then he starts like pouring out how impressed he is with this essay, which is very dark. Is her talking about the fact that she was a, ba- a ballerina until she was 18 and got horribly injured and how now she feels like she's like a walking dead person. Yeah, like giving up your dream that you'd worked your yeah. whole life for is about the same as dying. And how we're all dying. And it's it's very nihilistic. And he's like, you know, I was really impressed that somebody as young <laughs> as you uh had can you know could think something so deep um it's also interesting too this is the first time we see and this the the camera angles that they employ throughout the movie are really really important and and they tell you a lot in this scene and for about the first half of the scenes with shigaharu and asami the camera focuses almost exclusively on him and even if she's included in the shot it's often as like an over the shoulder or Mm -hmm. He's always the primary focus in these shots. And that's to me is very telling because at, first of all, it shows that like he believes himself to be the most important part of the, this interaction, but it yeah. also comes to represent her obsession with him and her single focus on him. 
And then she's also kind of like, uh, you know, we learn more about her as the movie goes along, but she's very mysterious and kind of a blank slate. They always dress her in white. Yes. Which I thought was an interesting choice. She wears pops of color. She wears almost the identical outfit every time she sees him, which is this like white blouse and white skirt. And yeah, always something over it that's different, but it's almost the identical outfit the entire movie other than Mm -hmm. the, the accessories. Which it might be close to the idea, because when you realize what her current home life is, she doesn't seem to be living in a very well-kept apartment right. or wherever she's staying. I think, yeah, I think it's partially uh, a, a financial thing, but also partially a sort of hint that things aren't hmm. as as uh, perfect as as they like to kind of paint it, which again, we'll get into that. But anyway, this audition takes place. And during the audition, she, uh, in addition to talking about this essay, she drops some hints about her personal life. One of them being that she has an agent or he's like a, well, she doesn't have an agent. He's a music record producer who looks after her is what she says. Right. And that's a, that's a very key piece of information. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, so yeah, they. I, I also. Well, we'll come back to there. There's some hints that as we go through, I want to talk about how the the filmmakers left clever hints. We later learn that she worked works and or worked at a bar called Stonefish, and that felt particular to me because I knew a little bit about Stonefish. So Stonefish are fish that yeah that live on the ocean floor and blend, make themselves look like stones or coral to blend in. And they're, okay. they're the most venomous fish in the ocean, but they kind of go unnoticed and, okay. and they have very like needle like protrusions from their, their back. Oh, that that... if they're stepped on or bitten, <laughs> release this powerful venom that is a neurotoxin, okay. which, which I thought once you've seen the whole thing, that's a very clever hint. <laughs> yeah, um, there's I figure, especially with, the, you know, for me being a foreign language movie, I, I feel like you would get a lot on second viewing of this film. For sure. I think there is um, it should be required that if you watch it once, you have to watch it twice. <laughs> All uh, right. Because I'll try to get to it again. I, I, I'm just I'm just scratching, you know, just chomping at the bit to get to another well, viewing of it. <laughs> I, I know there's also the. um the sun is very into archaeology uh, and like dinosaurs, dinosaurs, not archaeology. What am I? Oh, paleontology. paleontology. That's it. There you go. And the the dinosaur that he talks about over and over again in the movie is the Aoraptor. Um, Aoraptors are small and pale and they had needle like teeth and claws. Huh. Just thought okay. I'd throw that out there too. So that gets a little. I was I was wondering like they made such a big deal about his like dinosaur interests, and I was like, what is the reason? There has to be a reason because they do it like three times. Bring you know yeah. he, he wants to check out. They found this new dinosaur. He's showing the girl his dinosaur books that he brings over from school, and then he and when they're in his room, he's got all sorts of dinosaur paraphernalia. Yeah, but I was like, what is the real reason for this? So that well, I think that's part of it. Light on that. I think that's part of it, and I think the other part of it is the idea of like digging up secrets and like yeah. having skeletons literal skeletons in this case um yeah in your closet that's i think that's kind of the extent of it but anyway the the two of them interact and there is they call each other they go on a date and then later there's this scene of shigaharu and yoshihama at a like a it's a rooftop putting green or not uh but like a driving range yeah mm-hmm. um and 
Yoshihama is kind of like, man, there's there's something wrong here. Like she makes me nervous. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something wrong with her. And brings he up called that he called that record uh, studio or whatever. Yeah. And asked about the the name she had given, and that guy did work there, but he's been missing for eighteen months. Yes. Um, that's obviously mysterious. <laughs> sure. So that's the first. That's one of the first hints we get that like, okay, that's weird. She lied in her audition, and she lied about a guy who's now missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but okay, so whatever. And and that's how Shigaharu is like. Listen, man, whatever trouble she has, I can handle it. There's nothing like that. You you haven't spent any time with this girl. Whatever she's got, I can handle it. Yeah. But but Yoshihama makes him promise, and this is a key detail. Listen, just promise me you won't call her for a few days. Let it let it sit for a few days. And then And he does kind of agree to that, but he and, doesn't really stick to it. And this is the moment in the movie that I think is the most like romantic drama or like romantic comedy like where they have the cut scenes of the two of them looking at the phone over the course of several days to <laughs> except okay, so his are like, oh, he's at work or he's you know, at home or he's in his home office, blah, blah, blah. His are fairly Picks up normal. the receiver, hears the dial tone, right. and decides to put it back down. Hers, Hers, Asami, is not normal. She's sitting in the exact same spot on the floor in her apartment, staring at the phone, not changing her clothes, not changing her position for and like. Not just slouched, but hunched over. Well, and like. Just they, like not even supporting her head at all, just completely down. There's the implication that she like falls asleep sitting there. But not yeah. even in the cute way, in a way that's no. ho- wholly unnerving. And this is the first time you get this shot of this big canvas bag in her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, it may have been there bef- like at an, uh, at an earlier phone call, but during this sequence is when you see it for the first time and really are like, what's that doing there? It looks like a big mail <laughs> bag. Mm-hmm. And then... And it- Big and enough it, for something. <laughs> well, and then at the end of this sequence, when Shigaharu finally calls her, it it wriggles or like writhes with this horrible noise, like a <laughs> kind of noise, and yeah, then it cuts like a, like a weird guttural growl, but yeah. not like a fierce thing. It's very strange, but that was that was like the only like real like almost like jump scare moment sure. of the movie, but I think it was earned. I think it was a good use of that tactic. Oh yeah. It's definitely like it pays off in a big way. It builds that tension and pays it off. And you're right. This movie isn't really about jump scares. It's more about let's look directly at the thing. That's horrible. It <laughs> yeah. does not do the thing where it springs it on you. It's like, you know, it's coming, you know, it's going to be yeah. bad and we're going to focus on it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's the first real indication to us, the audience, that, OK, these these fears that something's weird are confirmed. Something is weird. Mm-hmm. here. <laughs> uh, so um, the next like big indication of that. Well, I think it's worth noting because I want to talk about camera angles and I want to talk about how they come back with a vengeance later in the film. OK, there are several scenes of them or there's scenes on the, of them on dates first in like a. Like almost a diner, and then later, it, 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 it and the the editing of that scene is very jarring, yes. and then it just mid scene immediately cuts to this fancy restaurant, and the editing of that scene is very jarring. Yeah, there's there's like three major cuts in if you count that date as one scene, yeah. and yeah, they're all very jarring and well, and not and non sequitur. There's a couple of places yeah. where you go, is that is that right? Did they mean to do it that way? And of course, that they, would, that's it. 
that crossed my mind because, you know, I'm watching it on like a streaming platform and it's not the most well-known movie. So like, I don't really know right. <laughs> exactly what's going on. It was something messed up in the edit for putting it on, you know, I was watching on like Tubi or something because yeah. it was free on there, but I just thought maybe something was off or yeah, it's, it's very strange, but that comes back. Right. And this is the first time during their interactions where the camera seems to spend time on them equally. Mm-hmm. And throughout the film, um, the kind of which character gets the most camera time now is starting to shift. Before Shigaharu, who was very much in control of the situation, was getting the like primary focus of camera attention. It also symbolizes like him, his self-absorption, but it also symbolizes yeah. her obsession with him. Now, about mid-movie, the camera time is more equal. They're giving us shots of both of them. They're they're not like POV-style shots. They're more to what you would think of as traditional filming, like traditional blocking. Um, but yeah, they seem to be having perfectly normal conversations with each other in these dates. And then so much so that, uh, well, it's it's also worth mentioning that after this date, like they ride in a car together and she just kind of like at some random points, like I'll get out here. It's clearly not her apartment. She's like, I'll get out here. And it's kind of like, Oh, okay. There's she doesn't really even think much of it, which I would say that's probably normally a red flag when you're on a date with somebody and just abruptly, they're like, actually, this is where you can let me off. Right. And, and not, yeah. And not in a way where you like look out the window and, and you're like looking at where you'd like to be dropped. And you're like, Oh, this will be good. It's like, let me out here. Yeah. I also noticed that there's like, while they, there's no romantic chemistry between them at all. There is mm-hmm. cordial chemistry between them, but it's not, you know, you would think maybe the getting out of the car, she might have like leaned over and gi- they given him a kiss or something. Yeah. You're not sitting there at any moment wait, you know, like the kiss, kiss, kiss moment. Like there's, you don't get that feeling at all whenever they're together. No. Um, and, but, but despite all of this, they decide to go on at least a weekend trip together and uh to a place he's clearly been before right because he which knows might also be uh you know maybe he just went there with his wife but might also be an indication that there are other women that he's maybe done things with because he's very experienced on this romantic getaway and what they're going to do and where the places they can go to a little cafe or a little art shop or the chef here is really good things like that yeah and he's yeah you're right he's very familiar so much so that he knows the chef likes to make jokes like yeah. that's a pretty that's pretty specific. That's not the kind of thing you get out of reading like a Zagat's guide. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly she just starts undressing. And there's this scene that's very again in a in a scene where in a romantic comedy this would be they'd be playing sexy music and the lighting would be warm and no. Perfectly cold lighting, very sterile music. She undresses. She gets into bed without letting and him. And she never really does anything seductive no. as she's undressing. It's she a very like matter of fact undressing. Yes, as though you you brought it up earlier. As though it's kind of what you're supposed to do. Like it's programmed mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. And that's how that whole scene is played out. Like not that there's any sort of attraction, but like this is what's expected, kind of. Mm-hmm. And he at first he's not even sure what to do with you know <laughs> what's going on. She shows he, he kind of is still talking about like their plans for the evening and stuff as she just continues to undress and getting into the bed. Yep. And then and then she has him come over to the bed, but not undress. Just like look at her naked. He, she shows him scars on her thigh, which I at first thought were like cutting scars. That's what I thought they were too. Yeah. And they and they earlier in the film, in fact, they have a girl who like during her audition. 
says, like, these are my cutting scars and describes them all. And so I thought, okay, they kind of placed that in our heads that that's what it's supposed to be. She says I was burned as a child. Okay, that doesn't that doesn't jive for us right away. And well, because it doesn't look like a you know it doesn't look like a dropped boiling water on your leg type burn. Right. So it's so yeah. Again, clearly you're like okay, that doesn't that doesn't jive. But he ends up in bed with her. And did you notice that there's that moment where he gets into bed and he tosses the covers and there's a rolling that happens. It's identical to the rolling of the canvas bag in the apartment and the same noise happens. Yes. And in a split second, he's, uh, he's in bed alone. He wakes up, he's like holding his head. He's very very groggy. Yeah. And the phone's ringing. They call to let him know that she's left without him. He has no, he has no idea why she left and he can't get a hold of her and she's not answering her phone calls. He doesn't know where she lives. And so he feels like yeah. she's just lost and he's so confused because he has no idea what happened. And there's this pivotal thing in that scene where she says, promise you'll love only me, me and say you'll love me and nobody else. And then he says, yeah, okay. And she says, they all say that, but you're different. And then yeah, they repeat, and they repeat that too, back and the way forth several times. The way she says it, and repeats it and really focuses on it. You you get that sense. That she doesn't mean love me as your wife and no other woman right. in that sense. She means <laughs> nobody no else. else. No other affection for anybody. I also yes. thought it was interesting in my notes, I put um, she leaves him like a ghost. And then, in, and then I had a moment where I like put it in all capital letters. She ghosted him, <laughs> <laughs> which who knows? Is this the first instance of ghosting? Probably not. <laughs> So she now is completely, she's disappeared and he doesn't know where she lives and he knows where she says she works, but she asked him not to go there because the, her boss meddles in her private life. Yeah. He calls her, but no answer. So when I, so now we leave, we basically leave comedy movie set up into detective movie set up. Yeah. And it's like three phases of this movie. Precisely. And I, and, and you know, when, when you and I talked about it and I was pitching like, Hey, this is one of the scariest movies I know about for reasons that you won't expect um it's like part romance part detective movie and then about two-thirds away and it takes a real hard left turn yes uh, into <laughs> full-on horrific visceral it's creepy yeah. yeah it's creepy up to this point but not like super scary and then yeah so the detective vibe kicks in he goes to this dance studio where she studied he meets uh Shimada, Mr. Shimada, who's the ballet instructor, who is clearly off in like mentally he's off. He the way he talks about Asami in a very vulgar sexual way. And Mm -hmm. then he and then he has a flashback of being the one to scar her with burning with like hot metal rods on her inner thigh when she still has burning. Right. As he's playing that piano. And, and, uh, and did you notice he's playing the, her theme? It's like her theme from the orchestral music or from the, okay, the soundtrack. And he, so he clearly has been the one, at least one person who has sexually abused her. That's made very Mm -hmm. clear. And he also has like, you can't tell if he's been injured in some sort of way on his legs and his feet because he's in a wheelchair. His toes are mangled. His skin looks weird. You can't, it's, you can't tell if he's been horribly mangled on his legs and some sort of bad surgical repair happened or mm-hmm. if he's wearing somebody else's like leg skin because it's 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 um, yeah, it sewn up in a weird way. Yeah. 
It's very strange. And there's also... And it's got... Yeah, his skin has, like, a tint to it that doesn't look like living tissue anymore. It's per- Yeah, it's, like, purple-gray. Yeah. Looks very dead. Not quite, like... Uh, yeah, it's very strange. You can't... You can make some inferences about what might have happened uh, that, that maybe uh, Asami got her revenge on him or that mm-hmm. the reason the way he is is because he had some sort of horrible injury. But anyway, clearly a, a gross pervert dude. And... Uh, isn't able to tell um, Shigaharu anything about her except to be like, have you smelled the way she smells? It's super <laughs> gross. It's very bad. Yeah. And so, not helpful to finding her. No. So then he goes to her workplace and meets... As the only you, other real thing he knows about her outside of their minimal relationship and meets as you titled it in your notes mr exposition which i thought was very good i mean if you were doing the research as a detective you'd probably already know all this stuff but if you were somebody like a private detective yeah. who doesn't have you know privy to all the information that police might have this would be like a gold mine for sure to go here and be like huh it's closed and then a the guy's like here's everything that happened here oh can i back up for one hot second in my notes sure. i have Shimada is a perverse reflection of Shigaharu's obsession. So in the way that Shigaharu is kind of like obsessed with her, but in a way that you can find endearing Shigaharu Mm -hmm. or Shimada is like the, the, the most uh, extra or disgusting version of that. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, fast forward, Mr. Exposition. So he, yeah, he goes to the stonefish bar. It's, the door is locked. The the sign. I think the sign might be in a little disrepair or whatever. Yeah. But it's got a bunch of mail on the ground. It's clearly not open and hasn't and has been closed for some time. And he's kind of like, well, this is a dead end. So he's about to walk up the stairs and he meets the. I don't know if it's the neighboring business or a guy who lives on an apartment above it, whatever. Yeah. But it's a guy walking by and he's like, oh, don't bother going there. It's been closed for months. And he's like, why? And he's like, the owner was murdered. And horrifically like, oh. and dismembered and cut into pieces and he was like there was so much blood that it was flowing out under the door which shigaharu is still down there and he kind of like is stepping away slowly as this guy is explaining more and more yeah of what happened and then he said but the weirdest thing yeah when the police were discovering the body and all the body parts and how it had been dismembered they found three extra fingers an ear and a tongue well, and there's the, the, the little note that he gives that the bar owner had been fooling around with some music producer or something. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is the moment where you now, okay, so you connect it to the guy with Ace Records, the guy that Asami said was her agent. Mm-hmm. And now this is her boss that interferes in her personal affairs. So there's yep. now you're starting to put to, the pieces together. Did Asami kill her former boss because this like record producer who showed interest in her professionally maybe fooled around with the bar owner is there a reason she tells shigaharu not to come there not just because it's closed and he'll find there was a murder there but because that's what happened with her last love interest he came to the bar and then she ended up having to do some horrible thing (laughs) yeah um which is more or less confirmed later in the film that that's the sequence of events um, so this is where, you know, he, he is on this investigation and he feels like, okay, this is weird. I need to go home and process. This yeah. is another place in the film where like the camera angles are very particular because they show the point of view from outside of Shigaharu's apartment and the housekeeper is there and the, the 
the way the camera moves is very animalistic, very point of view, and it basically confirms for you Asami is breaking into his apartment and bad stuff is happening. And in that terrible gut feeling, you just know something's going to happen to that dog. Well, and, and so one of the ways they also use the camera throughout the movie is having the, the camera linger too long on things that are otherwise unremarkable, mm-hmm. which tells you that something about that is important. They do that with some of the dinosaur stuff. They do that with the canvas bag. Um, they do that with the dog. Ugh. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and they do that then in the next scene with the whiskey um, decanter, and yep. it, all of it adds up to you knowing something is wrong here, something bad is about to happen. Now, I would like to take the moment before we jump into the like fever dream reveal, and then the last <laughs> kind of moment to talk a little bit about some of the themes. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the way this movie portrays innocence versus the grotesque a lot of the reason i want to do it here is because i think a lot of these are going to pay off in the last little bit of conversation we have about the about the narrative so throughout the movie there's a lot of times when they juxtapose things that are pure with things that are horrible it's the the son with his wanting to show his mother the science project he walks in to find she's dead um Mm. the way they portray um Asami is being very childlike, and then later the the payoff of that. But even things like her, the the depictions of her as a child ballerina dancing, and then juxtaposed with like her being horribly mutilated with her on her thighs with these like burning rods. Um, and it, it, also with the implication too that like she's not just some born psychopath that through she was made this repeated way. trauma she has this problem, and then you know she meets another guy who possibly doesn't have the best of intentions with her and right. um, you know it triggers her to keep on doing stuff like this i i agree with that and i think too there there's definitely the implication she's made this way although you could read it as though she's always been this way and these things have happened not the child abuse but like some of the things that she talks about like my aunt was really abusive uh-huh. um now you don't know if you can believe her much or not i mean that probably was true um, she said like her stepdad hated her and she would like hide until her mom when she ended up back with her mom after, you know, just yeah. but just yeah, a broken childhood between sure. houses and different you know, parental figures. But um, then even um, later on in a scene like when she's tending to her pet is how I'd like to refer to it at the moment <laughs> and feeds him and, pe- and sits and pets him and they, they actually do. They pan between her as an adult and her as a child. They, like, make her a child in that sense. Yeah. The way she dresses with, like, the big Muppet coats and brightly colored things over her um, over her white smock. Mm-hmm. And then later, again, this sort of childlike glee she shows when she's doing the things that she's doing. Yeah. Um, very, like I said, very much, uh, and the fact she's always wearing white, these, like, innocence versus the grotesque ideas. Yeah. I also think that before we talk about the final scene, it's worth asking if this movie is a fe- the the feminist reading of this movie versus the misogynist reading of this movie. Is Asami like an avenging angel who takes revenge on men that deserve it, or is this movie just a depiction of the male domination of women and the fear of female sexuality? Mm-hmm. Thoughts. <laughs> It's interesting because, you know, with tweaks to the story, it's like a femme fatale. 
sure. type movie. But, you know, the, she's Asami's obviously supposed to be the villain, but not that Shigaharu is ultimately a hero in yeah. a sense. He's still got his laundry list of problems. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, whereas like there is a little bit of getting over on the guy who is misogynistic and like doing this thing for the wrong reasons and taking advantage of these women. But there's clearly a line drawn that Asami is not doing this correctly. Well, and I think I agree with you that it's hard to look at it completely one way or the other. I think it's interesting how, the way that in the final moments she just regurgitates these lines as she's mm-hmm. dying, not, but not lines that are meaningful or sympathetic, just like spitting out things that she said to him earlier. It I almost read this makes too is like she was prepared to do this with multiple men, and so maybe the music producer right. and Shigaharu aren't one and two. Maybe they're four and five. Yeah, or exa- and that was what I was going to say. There is the implication that maybe she is luring men under false pretenses the same way that Shigaharu lured her under false pretenses. Yeah, because she doesn't hear the ad for the for the audition and like kind of go in there with like, oh, maybe this is my chance to get into acting after ballet worked. She they show her when she hears that ad on the radio and she just cracks this really wide kind of creepy smile like the Joker almost like (laughs) like she already knows, even though other girls go to it with the intentions of being actresses, she already knows that this is a chance to capture another victim. Yeah. So I, and 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 obviously, I mean, throughout the movie, Shigaharu is. You're right. He's he's the protagonist, kind of, but he's not a good guy. Mm-hmm. And the way that he talks about women in general is, I, I think, even like obviously, the movie was made in 1999. We're in 2020. The way that cultures talk about women nowadays versus then is different okay yes but i don't think it's that much different that uh the audience in 1999 would have thought the way that these men are talking about women is perfectly normal and acceptable it's almost Mm like a 1950s you know what i mean like mr cleaver talking to june as though she's just a glorified housekeeper it's much more in that vein and Shigaharu also in like the sense that like women are like a prize for the men to win, even the way he treats like the way his son brings home a woman. He's like, good job. And like, you know, it's just he he has that sort of. Yeah. Well, and the fact that the very f- first scene in the like the modern timeline of the film, not like a flashback, is him talking about how like uh, I want to catch a big fish. So I'd rather have a, a real woman, though. Like, you know, the fact they compare <laughs> yeah. them one and the, one and the other. The way that they talk about, like, uh, there's that scene about the fish that black bream start as all, like, all of that species start as men, mm-hmm. and then they, like, have to choose to become women, and he has this line where he's like, well, I don't know anything about ovaries. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Because he he's like, do you, is this one a, you know, a man or a woman? And he's like, we just took out her ovaries. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't ovaries. know. Ovaries? What's that? Yeah. Um, so... It's. I think it's interesting to have those ideas in mind when you watch the film and try. To, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a right answer. Uh, people who are smarter than than us have argued about one or the other. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to talk about those two things as we go into the like coup de gras of the film. 
yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, while talking about that, this movie kind of reminds me of Fatal Attraction. Yes. It's very much in that same sense. It's much, the climax is even scarier than Fatal Attraction, which has a pretty horrific yeah. ending to it as well. well but I, that's. I was just going to say when, so Laura, not a fan of horror films, knew that I was not uh, going to watch this one with her. Um, but as I watched it, she is a fan of like psychological thrillers. So I was like, well, you'd, you'd be able to watch about two thirds of this movie and then you would not be able yeah. to watch the end. But I said to her, have you ever seen Fatal Attraction? It's very much the same kind of premise. Um, and one of the things that makes this one even scarier, though, is how easily she, Asami, infiltrates Shigaharu's life to, you know, get to this climax scene with, I mean, what they, I guess they went away to get three dates. Yeah. To count the, the three, triple three A. Dates, and she three has dates and a little trip. All this ability to just completely take over him in one evening. She knows where he lives. She knows the schedule of the housekeeper. She knows about the dog. She knows the sun is she going knows his out. affinity for whatever liquor that is right she knows the sun is going out and and in fact there's the implication that she poisons the son's girlfriend to get him to come home early mm-hmm. um like knowing that that'll mean he comes home earlier than than you know originally expected i.e when she's doing her thing um yeah because she almost to the moment knows like he's going to be home any second and I'm going to get him next. Um, so there is, but before that there's the scene where he drinks his whiskey and immediately knows something's wrong. And immediately he starts acting like he did after the bedroom scene in the, on the trip where he's like holding his head, he gets dizzy, he falls down and he starts having a series of like, part flashback part drug induced like hypnosis or remembering of things like a it's like a fever dream sequence in a movie basically yeah it's just one of those crazy what's going on but it's also even as you're watching it it's sometimes hard to figure out what is reality and what is just all a part of this dream what right what was what's a memory and what's him transposing Mm -hmm. but the thing that the that the fever dream slash drug hypnosis slash whatever gives you is a few things one it confirm it more or less confirms that he had been sleeping with his secretary and his housekeeper because he has flashbacks of i mean having his his secretary perform fellatio in a very uncaring like undisconnected way Yes. Um, in a way that you suspect throughout the film because of the way she acts towards him and like um, that, that something has gone on between them that him like crying into the naked chest of the of the housekeeper is also another thing that's kind of like okay we could have guessed that um, there is the scene of him uh, and and his son's girlfriend which I still am not sure if I think that's reality or just something that he wanted but she's there too Mm-hmm. And then he starts remembering these conversations that he had with with Asami during their dates, which is it's like where the cuts were right. that were that seemed abrupt in the in the first you know the initial watch through of those dates precisely. And while it is cut in such a way to tell us like this is where these scenes fit, mm-hmm. it also tells us for the first time that she was telling him about these horrible things that had happened to her and he was not it was not clicking with him he was either not paying attention or he was just kind of doing that like oh yeah mm-hmm, yeah thing 
and nodding along and giving completely non sequitur answers when you look back on it that are like very mm-hmm. uncaring and very unfeeling. Oh my, yeah, and then maybe almost there's a little bit of like, well, I can fix her. You know, she's young and I'm an experienced adult and yeah. you know thinking he can come in and be like her knight in shining armor maybe well and you go into the the that like up until that point in the movie you think well you could see why he missed some of the signs mm-hmm. but then when they do do that and they don't they do not frame that as him making something up it's framed as him remembering a real thing that happened yeah then it's like man how did you not how didn't you figure this out <laughs> um <laughs> And then they flash back to the the piece that was missing from the trip, the bedroom scene. Yeah. And they, they, well, no, they do that later. And then you're not sure if it's that he woke up from what the horrible thing is happening and it was a dream or if he's now kind of losing consciousness. Yeah. When they, when they do transport back to the hotel, it's the first time where it's like, it doesn't feel like he's watching it. It feels like he's living it again. Right. And the first second you're like, is he was, has this whole thing been a dream? Yeah. From the, from when he fell asleep on the trip to where we are now, has that whole thing been a dream? And then they confirm for us definitively, no, no, it's not. But but in that scene, he proposes to her. She says something to him that's very off in that scene. And Uh um, then you're seeing all these moments that were filled in. And then in what is probably the most horrible sequence, I don't even think the torture sequence is as bad as him somehow being in her apartment. Him discovering the canvas bag. I don't know if this is something that is supposed to have really happened. Probably not. Or if it's this is actual fever dream, but it's telling us the audience a real thing. Yeah. And I was also curious is like, where is her apartment? Because the way they depict her childhood and some of that, it almost seems like it might be the second floor of the ballet studio. Sure. Well, or that it's it's the house where her stepfather that hates her lives. Like yeah. they, Yeah. It's hard to tell exactly what the situation is there. But the canvas bag opens up. And a man crawls out, missing three fingers and both of his feet and one of his ears and his tongue. And he crawls out like a like an animal. Uh, yeah. And Shigaharu sees him. And then from another room, you hear Asami vomiting. And then she comes out with a bowl full of her own vomit and feeds it to the guy who <laughs> gladly laps it up. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that's Ugh. the most horrible. And is also, by the way... Let's talk about the innocent versus the grotesque. Yeah. It's a it's a reflection of the last time we see, well, the next to last time we see the beagle puppy who is mm-hmm. in- innocently eating out of his bowl. That's Shigaharu's pet. Asami's pet is a man that she's kept captive, we think, for 18 months. And yeah. So I, this probably isn't something they meant, but they his son does mention to him at one point when he's finishing up his food that like, hey, uh, make sure the you know, the woman you marry is a better cook than the housekeeper. Yeah. And if this is any depiction of how Asami cooks. Yeah. Oh, she's that's not going to be a better cook. <laughs> that's a very good point. Yeah. I don't think I caught that, but that's I'm sure they meant that. Mm-hmm. There's also the the implication when when Shigaharu comes home and he's listening to his son's voicemail, he says when the dog comes out of hiding. And so we the audience know Asami was in the apartment with the son when he came home or whatever, you know what I mean? Because the dog was totally out and about the last time we saw him, you, he was just eating. The dog has never hidden throughout the whole movie. It's always yeah. around, it's always around and like being cute. And the fact that it would suddenly disappear is very strange. Yeah. So, um so then the, the the thing happens. And the thing is that 
that Shigaharu is is paralyzed from this this poison or this toxin that Asami comes in and says, I've given you this thing. You cannot move, but you can feel everything. In fact, you're going to feel things more intensely. Mm-hmm. And doesn't give a ton of justification, except that she's just like, you're a liar. All men are liars. You, you, you said you would only love me, but you love that dog and you Your love son. your son. And, and, and she they show her finding, I think when she goes up to his like room or office, the picture of the, the wife. Picture. Yeah. And that's when she said, all words are lies, but pain doesn't lie. And yeah, there's this implication that through her life, she has learned to conflate love and pain because the people who were supposed to love her have done horrible things to her. Yeah. And then she uh, uh, puts a, a hypodermic needle into his tongue to give him more of this drug. And then she starts pulling out. And by the way, she's still wearing her white outfit. But this time she's wearing a black leather apron and black mm-hmm. like elbow length leather gloves. She has a doctor's bag with a kit in it, which is the moment when you think, oh, she's done this before many yeah. times. And she has a tarp that yeah, she lays the, out. It has the precision of like, uh, you know, like the show Dexter. Yes. And it like, to me also. She knows what she's doing. It felt a little bit too like a Jack the Ripper reference because there's always this idea that Jack the Ripper took a Gladstone bag around with him, which is that like black medical bag. Mm-hmm. Maybe not intended, but that's what it evoked for me. It's like the house call bag. Precisely. And she had like, again, she has this perfect kit with gauze and alcohol and, you know, stainless steel containers of these hypodermic needles. And yeah, and very like uh, the way she tortures him is precise. She's not just taking a knife and stabbing him. It's yeah, it's delicate. And even the, mm-hmm. when she does the the horrible thing of okay, so she she sticks the needles in his gut. She sticks the needles in his eyelids, and that's where that whole thing of her she says deeper, deeper, which in Japanese is kitty kitty kitty. It's and this becomes a refrain of her just being like deeper, deeper, and then she tells you more horrible things while she's gleefully mm-hmm. like a child, like a child. And then as she go with the needles when she goes up to do the ones in his eyelids, she like straddles him, which in you know a normal sense might seem sexual, but she goes up to his chest and shoves those needles in more, or bends them, or whatever right. that would do, and that's clearly yeah, causing him even more pain and distress. And 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 assume too that they're sticking her in some sort of way, but. She she doesn't mm-hmm. care because she's desensitized to it or likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she pulls out the piano wire and which, by the way, throwback to I want a woman who can play the piano doesn't have to not super well, but it is a piano wire. Um, OK, I didn't know that, that that was piano wire, but that that that's a interesting callback. That's a yeah, good little. There's not a lot of wasted references in this movie. No. And I can tell you, too, that the handles that are the piano wires wrapped around one of them is just like a drawer pool but one of them is specifically like a piano cover pool like you know on a piano there's that wooden cover that sits on the keys and then you lift it and push it backwards and then uncovers the keys one of them is specifically one of those which as a person who's played piano for years i was like oh that's good too (laughs) (laughs) um so she would have had to have access to one somewhere to take that hardware off of it Mm -hmm. um and yeah the dance studio presumably yeah one would yeah. one, and and who knows that might be like her signature of killing or dis or you know maiming is that she's using uh, what if what if there was like a missing key when the guy was playing the piano <laughs> i wonder if you go back and listen and to watch it, if the like footage if there's like one note like that a, doesn't play yeah <laughs> that would be very that would be very dedicated placement of an <laughs> easter egg and then she just starts sawing off his foot with a piano wire 
she's like a it, it so easily cuts through bone like she's yeah. so matter of fact and like yeah I've, I've done this this works really yeah. well yeah um and and as you said it's very delicate the, these things mm-hmm. that she's doing that are grotesquely violent are very delicately done are and and again it's you know japanese filmmaking in general there's so much attention to detail and like visuals the way that his like red like bright red blood sprays on her like pristine white outfit in this like canvas drop cloth yeah if it weren't what it is it would be gorgeous <laughs> <laughs> but but it's hard but but i think that's too putting the sort of innocence and beauty next to the grotesque and you as the viewer are both enjoying the 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 film the like artistry and you find mm-hmm. yourself enjoying the horrible thing too like I don't in know a if sick I'm way. Sorry to say, enjoy, but well, it, appreciating. But I guess that's what I what I guess I mean is they <laughs> they take a thing that that really if you were if you had like self preservation in mind you would turn this movie off at that point. Yeah. You're like this is gross. Well, I don't it, need to watch this. Except that it's so beautifully done. <laughs> well, because it sort of reminds you in ways, uh, and this would predate those movies, but like Hostel and Saw. But it's done in a much cleaner, nicer environment where those movies are supposed to be in dingy, dirty places. Two directors who cite Audition as one of their inspirations are Lee Whannell and Eli Roth. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, those are definitively like inspired by this. Um, Yeah. So the oh, I forgot the horrible. So Laura's policy, she doesn't like horror movies, but if a movie has a, a injury to dogs in it, she's like, I will not watch it to the point where she'll be like, you have to turn it off now. Like you've lost your film suggesting privilege on this one. <laughs> okay. And I had forgotten that that happened. So the quick s- side story. I don't know how when we were watching the th- I was like, oh, we should watch the thing. The thing's this great film. I don't know mm. how I forgot that there's the scene where they shoot the dogs in the thing. But that's I d- like the and then the the one dog just starts, you know, like convulsing and he falls apart and then like the skull falls out right. and he turns into the thing and it's like creature form. That was one of those moments yeah. where I lost my privileges <laughs> that I completely had forgotten was in that movie. <laughs> that's a big scene. That's that's on you. I'm not going to I'm not going to make any excuses. I remember the fr- I remembered the beginning that they're shooting at the dog and I said like uh-huh. but I didn't want to give away the the twist but I was like no but it's okay. trust me that this is okay. Trust yeah. me that this one's all right. I can't tell you why, but trust me that this one's okay. And then later when it's like, oh, no, they're actively just like pumping bullets into dogs, even though they turn out to be things, you know, anyway. Yeah. Although I have two, uh, a beagle and a beagle mix. And to, so to see like a beagle puppy with its head craned completely backwards was a little mm-hmm. jarring. And I was like, oh, crap. Yeah. Oh, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> it's horrible. It's usually not as... Uh like depicted yeah Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a quick like two second glimpse you get of it but you get a you see it anywho yeah and it's while you're it's while the anticipation there that like the next time you see this dog you know something bad is it you know yeah yeah and they and they don't um one of the things that i have is like a a thing about this film is the geez these frank depictions of just uh, like unthinkable violence just unimaginable violence done on in a way that uh, we've become so desensitized to like, Oh, people getting shot up in like a diehard movie. We just don't even think about that, but to have a movie where the violence is so in your face and you can't avoid, you can't do the thing where you like mind blanket away (laughs) Mm -hmm. unless you just don't look at the screen. 
Well, like in this movie, there's only one like true character that gets murdered. But then, yeah, you talk about those action movies where like Jack Bauer in 24 kills a person on average, like every 23 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but Thanks. this is way more horrific. And actually, she doesn't even kill him. Yeah. No, she, I mean, presumably, she tries to. But... Yeah, she dies, I guess. But she doesn't get good. You could debate on whether she gets killed. She gets kicked down the stairs by... Uh, can, we, son. can we talk about the fact so i did i laughed in this last sequence at one particular thing so she she does all this th- these things to him she cuts his foot off and then she says and guess what you know what's really gonna hurt when you watch me kill your son in front of your eyes and that's the first time where he re- like he's been reacting but he really reacts to that mm-hmm. and in fact it's it's moments later that his son comes home she grabs a can of something out of the bag and goes and hides gleefully. Mm -hmm. And the son comes in and finds the dad and is like, what the hell? And she runs out. And I thought even I, I've seen this movie. I had forgotten that it was what it was. I was like, Oh, it's chloroform spray or something like that. It's mace. That, yeah, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was mace the whole time, but she's very sheepish with it at first. Yeah. And then I thought, I thought, well, that's not that scary. I mean, yeah, I guess if you get a face full of mace. Mace is a tricky one, too. In an enclosed place, it can affect you as well. Right. I, yeah, I don't. But I just thought it was kind of the way that she like chases him around spritzing mace. Because it's not even like mm-hmm. an aerosolized can. It's like spritz mace. Yeah, it's, it is weird. <laughs> Anywho. It- <laughs> I just, I laughed honestly at that point. Because I was like, this, that's not even scary. <laughs> yeah. And then, like I said, he kicks her down the stairs as she, right after she gets him at the top of him, breaks her neck, it looks like. Yeah. and In the same way, by earlier. the way, that the dog's neck is broken. Not, yeah. again, not a wasted detail. Yep. And then she, you know, yeah, is repeating words she had said earlier. And basically the movie ends. You you assume Shigaharu makes it. The but... son is calling 911 or whatever the yeah. equivalent is in Japan. And saying, like, well, my dad is really injured. Like, his foot has been cut off. There's that part. We forgot the part where she, like, picks up his foot and throws it at the glass door and it, like, splats. Oh, yeah. Which and felt very Tarantino to me. on the door. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's when she starts sort of robotically repeating the lines, like, uh, from earlier in the film. Like, you said you would only love me. I'm so excited to see you again. I wasn't sure if I'd ever see you again. I was waiting for your call. Um. And that's the moment when you go, oh, these lines don't mean any. They're lines. They don't mean anything to her. She has mm-hmm. said this to other people in this same way before. She has played this character of the needy, yeah. like clingy woman before. I was wondering if she, like, because of her coming up and being abused as a ballet dancer and stuff like that, if she purposely targets men in like the entertainment industry because we know one of her previous victims was a music producer we know this guy is a movie producer and she goes on this not by scouting him out but by hearing a an, a casting call right i, I don't so she know yeah I, I don't know if there's that that idea of like men who make themselves more important by exploiting women kind of the same way the ballet teacher did yeah there is i think yeah there's definitely a a, a hint that that and very much like a father figure, com- like a daddy complex kind of too about it. Cause she's, you know, mm-hmm. there's this point made that he's like 20 years older than her or 15 years older than her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, if you think about it in the same way that they think of actresses as being easy targets, so is a record producer. So is a TV producer, somebody who meets strangers all the time and has to form 
this connection with them over something that's like artistic and emotional and they rely on one another. Yeah. Like record producers and TV producers rely on the talented people, even though they kind of treat them like commodities, they wouldn't have a business without them. And so there is this sort of like twisting of that relationship to put her in power as opposed Mm -hmm. to the traditional way where the man in this sense, in this case is in power. Yeah. And then the last bit on that too is like, she has it all figured out. Like even as they're still going on their dates, the se- the first date they go on, he's still like kind of acting like they're still looking for the actress or, you know, and then he reveals that the movie's not going to be made. And, you know, there's some stuff with the backer. So like, he's still trying to play it off. Like he's in control that like this whole fake audition was still legitimate. Yeah. And, but from really from the get go, she knows. So really while it looks like he was in control, he was really never in control. Right. Yeah, she she definitely plays the part very well, but she has him fooled and at the same time like gave him all the information he needed to realize something bad was going to happen to him. Yep. I I will say too, one of the things I also appreciated about the the camera work. Not only is it like we've talked about lingering th- long on things that that are of importance. That's not a new trick. Filmmakers have been doing that forever. Hitchcock is really yeah. well known for doing that. Um you know the the pov shots that that or the like the over the shoulder shots that kind of give you an idea of who's in control um which by the way by the end the shots of her like pushing needles into him especially his eyelids are done in that same style where it's very Mm -hmm. like the camera is very much focused on her and you only get flashes of him yeah, the uh, Mike Stoklasa, who is one of the guys for Red Letter Media, they do a ton of movie review type stuff on YouTube. One of his like most famous lines is, "You may not have noticed it, but your brain did." Right, and that that silent language of filmmaking is used very effectively throughout audition. Well, and the, and the way that the camera is used to disorient us too. We talked about the like a weird abrupt cuts in the scene, uh, the scenes where then they reinsert things later. Um, mm-hmm. and the way in his, in his like fever dream sequence, the cuts, the, the way that like one character will suddenly become another, it's very, it's very disconcerting. It's very whiplash and it leaves you feeling the same way that he's feeling in a, in a way that you're, you're questioning everything you're seeing. Yeah. And it's brilliant. I mean, again, this movie is, this movie is a horror movie, but, and it's, and it's gory and it's. But it, but it's not cheap. Like, yeah. it's not cheap violence. It's very well-earned violence. It's not just there for, like, to show you gore. It's it's earned and beautiful. And then again, and the, you find uh, yourself like, looking at this beautiful thing that's also grotesque and, and appreciating it. <laughs> and then even, like, the detective stuff is still interesting, too. For like, sure. it's the mystery of the movie is you're also uh, interested in that. The movie at any point... The, if the first third of the movie had continued on through the rest of the movie, it could have been a very serviceable romance movie. If the second third of the movie, the detective portion, had gone on till the end of the movie, it would have been a very serviceable mystery movie. It mm-hmm. has very much t- like um, smacks of like vertigo to me, uh, the the Hitchcock movie in in that section. Yeah. And then yeah, by by putting those three pieces together, it's it's this it's a horror film. People like to turn their nose up at the word horror, and I get why. Yeah. There's a lot of really crappy horror movies out there. Yeah. Um, but this movie like went to find like the I think it went to the Palm Door Festival, which is like this you know 
independent French movie festival. I want to say it went to Cannes. I could be wrong about that. But like went to these fine film festivals mm-hmm. is is praised almost universally as a good like a fine film in 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 a category where horror films almost never end up. Yeah, and held to high esteem by other directors from around the world. Yeah, who who again cited as an influence say how mm-hmm. wonderful they think this movie is and solidified, you know, Takashi Miike as as one of his finest films. <laughs> yeah. So if you can deal with the the tragic themes and the, you know, so the the unsettling imagery and all that stuff, it's a movie that as we said is not only worth one view, but a second viewing where I think you can get even more out of it. And scenes where uh Shigeharu's by himself, I'm I'm going to go back and watch it again, not something that I would have to do for Nerd Association just to see where mm-hmm. I can spot her in the background of scenes cuz I have a sneaking suspicion if you pay attention, huh. she's probably in the background of a lot of those scenes that you just That's probably didn't notice in the first place. So anyway, audition chops. Thanks for um, submitting yourself to a hard to watch film. <laughs> Would do you, I mean, like is hard with this one, but did you appreciate it? Would you recommend it to folks? I would recommend it to people who I know genuinely have an interest in horror movies for sure. <laughs> OK, I'll take that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you can stomach it, go watch audition. It's kind of hard to find on the internet these days, but you can do it if you're dedicated enough, if you become obsessed enough like the characters in this film. As I mentioned at the top, we are still looking for your pop culture hot takes to uh, talk about on a very special episode of Nerd Association. You can send those to us or any other comments you have by finding us on Twitter. We are at NerdAssoc, N-E-R-D underscore A-S-S-O-C. You can also email us at NerdAssoc, no underscore there at gmail.com let us know what you think about our show let us know if you want to come on and be one of our nerds and uh yeah we'll talk to you again next week